and it's time to hate watch with us. Welcome back, y'all. So before we get started, back in episode two, we were talking about Anastasia, and um, Kelsey asked me about the Broadway show, and I sort of brushed her off because I had stopped caring at that point. So update, um, two weekends ago, I saw... Anastasia again in New York. Previously, I had seen it in previews in Connecticut, but I have now seen it in its home theater in New York. And I just wanted to check back in on some of the things that we had discussed back in that time. Check away. The question that you had started with back in episode two was like, generally tell me about the Broadway show. And I told you nothing. So let me just tell you, the one thing that this show does that I really appreciate is that there's like some mixed media shit that I feel like is a really strong callback to the original Don Bluth film. Tell me more. So there's like, um, it's a pretty small stage. It's in a pretty small theater. And it's like a pretty simplistic set that they use in a lot of really complex ways, right? So there's two wings. And then in the middle, there's what are essentially a couple sets of French doors with some screens behind it. So the two screens on the side um, use projectors, but then also have these rotating uh, like things in them so that the walls can turn. Um, and that's how they flip around some of the set pieces on the side, especially if they have a scene where it's supposed to be implied that characters are in two different countries in particular. Gotcha. Um, and then the back screen also has a projector. Um, And they do all kinds of crazy shit with the projector. Like, they have some cool animations of maps. They've got animations of cherry blossoms. They recreate the, um, uh, what is it, the Paris Holds the Key scene um, with the Eiffel Tower and the elevator and everything using some really cool graphics. They do some really cool Stalinist shit um, using the screens in the background. Um, And they've, like, super upgraded the graphics since I saw it in June. Are they, like, ripping from the movie? Uh, a little bit. Like, there's some things that are. It's not a complete riff on the movie. There's a lot of ways in which the movie had stronger uh, stronger arguments in the plot. Like, the, the original 1997 animated film did a better job of, like, fleshing Anastasia out as a multidimensional character with her own backstory outside of being a Romanov. Like, they explain her time in the orphanage and how she came to find Dimitri, which they don't really do in the play, um, which drives me a little crazy. The other thing I just want to touch on that we talked about in episode two is uh, the young sir who plays Dimitri and whether or not he is my one true Dimitri, which I will once again qualify that that Scott McGillivray is your one true Dimitri. <laughs> Scott McGillivray will forever be my one true Dimitri. That said, the young sir, and I don't have my playbill in front of me, so I can't remember his name, <laughs> um, but I'm familiar with him from television. He's had a couple roles on television. Do you think if I Google the young sir and Anastasia, he'll pop up? Google it exactly like that. I'm going to. I, I mean, I can Google it pretty quickly, too. Anyway, he is not my one true Dimitri. However, when faced with a Dimitri in real life, (laughs) you know, like you take what you can get and he is a convincing young sir. (laughs) I just need you to know that when you search this, it comes up with Bartok. Yeah, it does. (laughs) It's not better. No, it's not. Um, So I didn't say this in episode two, but... One thing that's interesting about the play is that they get rid of Rasputin, and they just never talk about Rasputin. So what's the driving, like, villain 
or like driving motivation, whatever, to actually yeah. do all this. Yeah. So Isn't they that important to like plot things. Well, I mean, it could be. I could honestly use this as like its own segment, which I won't do today because we have a packed agenda, as I said. Um, but basically, the writers of the play decided to focus more on historical context. And it's a lot more about essentially like the ruling class and like the meaning of government. So, so it's the right villain, the fuck up your alley. Oh, yeah. I like I am literally reading multiple books about the history of the Constitution right now because I am soul searching about the role of government. So I kind of feel like all of the things in my life are converging at this moment. Welcome to this hate watch IRL. <laughs> Um, so instead of Rasputin, the villain is a dude named Gleb, which is the worst name ever, and uh, he's a member of the Communist Party, and his father was a guard at the house where, in real life, the Romanovs were held hostage and eventually murdered. And so Gleb's whole thing is that he saw the Romanovs murdered, it was all for the greater good, so, like, he's been brainwashed into believing in communism, and then when the legend of Anastasia, like, comes to a head and he's faced with this young woman who may indeed be a Romanov, he has to have this internal crisis between what he believes is best for the people of Russia and, like, a real-life human. I so think there's an American's crossover in there that could happen for just one very special show. <laughs> we should do it! So beautiful. It is beautiful. It's poetic. And I think that, like, this could be an entry point into musicals for you. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I, ha- <laughs> I like musicals, though. You keep saying this. <laughs> There's, like, two that I like. <laughs> Let me live. God. No. no, I will not. Um, so the one thing that I will say about the play, and I, I'm going to wrap up because um, I think this is a good final point before we switch into the real meat of the episode here. The one thing that I struggled with with the play from the first time I saw it and started to resolve after the second time, but I'm still a little unhappy about, for me, like having such a strong emotional attachment to the original text, the movie, there were certain holes in it that I wanted fixed, but I didn't you know, like, when there's something that you love, you want to see it improved upon, not changed, and certainly not regressed upon. And I think that the play makes some honest efforts to improve on some of the holes in the movie. But there's a lot of holes that it either creates or chooses not to fix. And so for a long time, I saw that as like a straight up weakness in the play. But it was pointed out to me recently, that, that the reality is that every story has weaknesses in it. And so it brought me to this point of reflecting on um, reboots in particular and the places in which rewrites choose to either tackle holes in plots, change plots, and inevitably create new holes, or like choose to ignore things altogether. So I throw that at you as a possible transition point for our A segment because this was a theme that I found in our A segment as well. Oh, so casual. So casual. So what are we talking about today after this air of mystery? Today, we are talking about, unfortunately, (laughs) we are talking about the new live-action Beauty and the Beast. The Emma Watson Beauty and the Beast that has crushed, like, 
multiple opening weekend box office records. But not as many as you think. Not as many as you might think, but enough. Like, they're making some up. Like, I heard one was like, (laughs) March openings when it snows three times. I'm like, I don't think that's a real (laughs) metric that we're using. I mean, if there's one thing that I learned from my time in Boston, anything can be a metric as long as you put the word first in front of it. That's for sure. They have the first statue of George Washington on horseback. I didn't hear a word of that because our internet cut out, but I believe you. Oh, no. It was really sassy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so we are talking about Beauty and the Beast, which we both saw this last week. It is the reboot of the, what was it, 1991 mm-hmm. Disney film? I believe so. Um, and it is the first release of Disney's upcoming series of live-action remakes of um, their early 90s classics. I believe coming down the pipe is also The Little Mermaid and something else? Cinderella already came out, but that wasn't in the 90s, was it? Well, I mean, there was, like, the Brandy live-action remake, but... We'll get to that, don't you worry. (laughs) I don't think that Disney would be above doing an even more modern remake. They did one. When? It just flew under the radar. Oh, they did. You're right. It was a huge disaster. Yeah. So that's where we're at in the Disney movie landscape. Disney is out of ideas, so they're just rehashing old ones for nostalgia. (laughs) And whether or not you believe their metrics, can you honestly say that it was a mistake? No, because people are idiots. People are idiots. That's why it was not a mistake. (laughs) For Disney. I understand. I want to qualify this, because though there are many of you out there who enjoyed this film, I may not have been one of them. (laughs) I certainly was not one of them. (laughs) And as much as you claim to like musicals, the entire time I was in this film, various things would happen, and I would just think, oh god, Kelsey must have been so uncomfortable. (laughs) I would like to just preface this by saying that Kirstie and I haven't talked about our feelings about this Hardly at all, because we were waiting for the podcast, but all I told her was that I was so mad. So, so mad. (laughs) Oh my god, some theaters are doing sing-along events. Yeah, they are. Wow. I also just saw a gif that says that it's the number one movie in the world, so as long as we're talking about metrics. That's cool. All right, so I've got, like, a whole page of notes. Um, So do you want to start us off? Yeah, can I start us off by setting the scene of how I saw this movie? Yes, please. Um... I had a friend who asked me, do you want to go see this movie? And I was like, sure, I'll go see this movie. And there'd been so many commercials about it for so many months that I assumed it had already been out for like a week or two. And so I showed up to the movie theater and there were hundreds of people and I was like, what is happening? And that was when I realized that it was opening night and I was seeing the goddamn fucking Beauty and the Beast. Oh no. And it was, so I was like, not only there and like not super stoked to be there, but also I was there amongst people who are my actual fear landscape, which is like Disney people (laughs) who are the absolute worst. I know I said that like two weeks ago about house hunters people for tiny house hunters, but like these people top them. I would live in a tiny house if I didn't have to see Disney people anymore. Wow, that's bold. Oh, God. They had their, like, fucking mouse ears and shit. Like, ugh. Oh, well, so there is a difference. I'm going to pull from my experience being on Tumblr for too many years. There's a difference between, like, the Mickey Mouse part of the Disney crowd and, like, the princess-only part of the Disney crowd. Sort of like squares and rectangles. Like, 
the 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 Mickey Mouse Disney fans are the rectangles, and the princess people are the squares. In more ways than one. <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> Bet you can't guess which one I am. Uh, oh boy! All right. Anyway. So I'm going to go with overall thoughts on look and feel of this movie, because I think it's what bothered me more than anything else, and I wasn't prepared for that to be what bothered me the most. Yep. Oh, I was. Interesting. I knew just from seeing the previews, and like, I only watched one trailer, and it was the teaser. I hadn't watched any of the full trailers. The reason the teaser was my only exposure is because I had seen The Bachelor, and they were cross-promoting. Shocker. Yeah. Um, and so it makes sense because roses. <laughs> so even from the teaser, I could tell that the visuals were going to be the hardest fucking part of this whole misadventure. They were so hard. So like, it seems like they put like all of their budget into the CGI for like the candlestick and the teapot mm-hmm. and shit. And those were impressively well done. Like I got it. Um, they looked great. They did what they were supposed to do. And then it was like they had $20 left over for the entire fucking set. And I was like, okay. So it looked like the sets and the only analogy that came to my head right away was it looked like the made-for-TV Cinderella from 1997. Like, that's what the sets looked like. They had this, like, (laughs) cotton candy-colored sky painting in the background, and then they had these, like, shoddy cardboard set pieces, and, like, that's what it was. And that's exactly what this felt like, too. Like, besides the animation of, like, the characters, the actual backdrops were just like, yeah, whatever we have on the Disney lot that works is fine. It's true. So, like, they have the village that Belle lives in. So there's, like, the main part of town where the market is. And then you walk, like, a block up a hill and there's, like, a corner row house, and that's what she's supposed to live in. But very much true to, like, the tradition of old set pieces on sound stages. like, the camera never does a long shot from outside of the house, inside of the house. So, or from the market square to the corner house. Or does, like, different angles of the house. Right. You only ever see, like, an archway that presumably goes to a field and presumably goes down to the market square and then the corner house with, like, a couple of steps that goes up to the door. And it's literally always, like, a front and center shot. And you only ever see her walk up to the door and walk out of the door. But, like, there's never any interaction beyond that. So it's, like, very clearly a styrofoam castle wall Right. And, like, I thought they spent a lot, especially with that, like, opening scene, like, they spent so much effort trying to recreate, like, shot for shot the cartoon when they could have, like, actually established, like, an actual sense of place and time and could have, like, that could have been shot in the French countryside. They could have made it look realistic Mm -hmm. and, like, done something interesting with it. And instead, they were so intent on being, like, we're gonna make this exactly the same for all the people who are so obsessed with it being exactly the same. And, like, they thought that that way they wouldn't mess up and people wouldn't be upset with it. I agree with you. However, part of my struggle, and, like, I will own that I never... I've never seen any form of production of, like, the Broadway adaptation, so I've never seen, like, the high school play version. Mm-mm. I've never seen a touring show. Like, I, I've never heard the soundtrack, so I don't know where this 
you know, falls in that landscape of all the other adaptations of the story. But I could feel in this movie a lot of tension between trying to be a shot-for-shot remake of the animated original and, like, trying to put the film's stamp on it. Like, I felt like the, the producers wanted it to be a remake and a standalone at the same time, which you have to choose one. Right, you can't be both. You can't be both. Oh, you know what really bothered me as long as we're talking about sound stages? What? So in Belle, the like opening song that's her I Wish song. Yeah. Well, so first of all, I just want to say flat out, I thought that was the weakest song in the film. And that is before we even get into all of my really intense feelings about Be Our Guest and how fucking wrong it was. It wasn't wrong. Oh my god! Oh, oh my oh. god! Oh, we do not live the same life in this moment. <laughs> no. Something is happening. Wow. That was, okay. Okay, we'll get there. Uh, hold on. Okay. Oh, no. So, <laughs> so Belle, what did I do? my face is hot. Like my blood pressure just went up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Belle was the weakest song in this film. I'm saying it. That's where I'm at. So I didn't think that the way that, because that was very much a shot for shot remake. And I don't think they did a convincing job of it for a lot of reasons. Like a lot of the things in general that I didn't like about this film, like all converged in this scene to make me not like it. But in both the live action film and the animated film, there's this moment where Belle is in the middle of her verse at the end of the song, like right when there's the big, like, I wish moment crescendo. And she's walking through town, and then she appears over a hillside and starts spinning around. And it's the sound of music? Yeah. Yeah. Sound of music style. It works in animation the same way that, like, Journey to the Past in Anastasia works, even though she's in, like, five different parts of the Russian mountains. Right. It does not work in live action. Like, when you take a living human, when you take Emma Watson, and you have her in the middle of town, and then... The next word with a bridge cut, you have her on a hillside. I can't focus on the words, like the lyrics <laughs> and the verse. All I can think about is how the hell did she teleport to the top of a hillside in Austria? I mean, it's all that auto-tune. It's got special powers. No fucking kidding. Are we are we ready to get into that beef? Because that is an extra special gripe I have. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, so... I like Emma Watson. I have a lot of respect for Emma Watson. I have a little beef with Emma Watson, but, like, everyone, like, critiques famous actresses and actors, so whatever. But when you have a role that is the lead of a musical, which needs to be prioritized, the name or the singing? <laughs> like, and it sounds like I'm being sarcastic. For me, I want to ask this to the world as a legitimate value judgment because in that casting choice, a value judgment was made. And it was to prioritize her role as a big name actress over her role as a singer. And there are consequences to those choices for a production team. And the consequences here are that Emma Watson doesn't have the range. Not to evoke a meme, but she doesn't have the range. And so they had to rewrite all of the songs so that they would fit into her range, which meant that Belle in particular was like the most fucking anticlimactic I wish song in all of musical history. That's for sure. So I'm wondering if, because we were talking about how Cinderella was a dud, I'm wondering if in that movie, I haven't seen it, if they cast someone who was a better singer, like you were talking about, and it backfired, and that's why they did this. Just a judgment, just a guess. 
Yeah, it's hard. I never saw that one either because at the time I was boycotting live action remakes. I was really mad at Disney for um, for joining into reboot culture in such a really intense way. And also Cinderella was never a story I liked. So Really? Yeah, I was never into Cinderella. Oh, it was my favorite. It's such a boring story. It's like Stockholm Syndrome, which this is too, but like more different. In fairness, I was like way more into the like 1960 whatever Roger and Hammerstein one than anything else. Oh, I don't know that I've ever seen that one. What? Well, I had it on a VHS tape, so you probably can't see it now either. <laughs> Fair enough. So, yeah, I don't I don't really know how to answer that question without having seen it. I think they've already done casting for The Little Mermaid, right? Have they? I feel like I saw a casting announcement not too long ago. I can look this up. I'm looking. But it'll be interesting to me to see um, how their lead choices flesh out for that. I know that it's a hard choice for studios and, like, Emma Watson, in a lot of ways, was a clear choice for Belle because she kind of looks like her and she's bookish and smart. And, like, I feel like the world has always wanted Beauty and the Beast to be a feminist story and, like, say about that what you will. I'm not here to argue in its defense. But, you know, that's a thing Emma Watson likes, too. So in those senses, she's, like, a natural fit. I just... Belle was enough of a part in the original musical that needed a strong voice, and I... Emma Watson just didn't have the range. No, and I... It was funny that they were saying that, like, there was that whole thing with La La Land about how she was supposed to be in that, and, like, even Emma Stone wasn't that good vocally in that, I don't think. Like, I thought yeah. that was an auto-tune stretch, so I can't even imagine how bad it would have been if it had actually been Emma Watson. <laughs> I haven't seen La La Land either, but I did hear a sample of Emma Stone singing, and I had had some severe doubts even before that, so... I mean, I'm she was, surprised. she's great in other ways, just like cast, like you said, cast a singer if they're singing, like it's not right. that hard. And like, if you don't want to cast a singer, do it the old school way, like do it the 1950s way or do it the Disney animated classic way where like you have a voiceover actress doing the vocals right? and your actress doing the voice acting, like if that's if the face and the recognition is what's important to you, then like go all singing in the rain and have someone singing behind Emma Watson. It'll be fine. No one would have to know, or they can know. No one knew until Gene Kelly pulled back the curtain. Right. On the flip side of that, um, the one thing I found extremely convincing about this film that I think rescued it from the depths of like live action remake hell was the dude who played Gaston. And, like, I loved him. Me if I was supposed to know who he is, because I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't. I don't know who that is either. Dear Lord, is he the most perfect human in this entire production? It's true. He, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> right? He played him very similarly to the way he is animated. So it's not just the the shot for shot action, but like he like embodies bodied who Gaston is supposed to be like the idea that Gaston is the true monster um like I felt like he bought into the idea of Gaston himself which I did not believe that Emma Watson bought into the idea of Belle no and I also think that the rewrites for his dialogue were a huge benefit to this movie well to my transition point in the opener like there were a lot of holes between the original film and this remake that the producers chose not to fill but the few holes that they chose to deal with were via gaston 
And it was so good. Like, I want the buddy cop movie of Gaston and... Who, what's the other guy? LeFou. Yeah. I want that buddy cop movie for, like, the full movie. It's true. Although, I have to say, uh, what's... Who's the guy who played LeFou? I should know the show. Josh Gad. Josh Gad. I expected so much more from him going into this film. Oh, I thought and, he like, was good. Enough. I, he was, I don't know. I, I didn't have expectations. Fine. I thought he was okay. And, like... You know, I don't know his full body of work by any means, but I know enough about him to have expected um, something of him. And I don't think it's entirely his fault. So there's a lot that I could say that I don't think we really have time for, but about the acting and the direction and sort of where those two things were in conflict in this film. And I feel like I saw a lot of that through LeFou and the acting choices, but some of the dialogue choices and so I felt like he was not necessarily handed a part that was, like, well-crafted. Um, I felt like maybe it was a direction choice or maybe it was an acting choice, but he was, like, surprisingly rigid and rote about his delivery, which, like, you don't want your sidekicks to be rote. Sidekicks are supposed to be the comic relief. It doesn't work if they're too, like, too packaged. Yeah, that's fair. And he had a lot of dialogue that was, like, really, really heavy-handed, but, like, it was clearly intended to be obviously overhanded, but for a comedic value. And it was a comedic value that I just don't feel like it carried. So I'm trying to think of a couple of the lines in particular that bugged me. There's one in the in the battle in the castle where um, some piece of furniture comes up and says something to him. And he looks at them and he's like, well, originally I thought I was on Gaston's side, but now I'm not so sure. And it's just like this weird, like, uncomfortable moment. And I feel like it was supposed to be funny that he's having an existential crisis in the middle of this battle. But it was like, not. Yeah, I can see that. You know, like, there were several lines like that throughout where, like, whatever he said was over the top obvious and contrived. And but it was delivery was bad. Be, well, it was supposed to be... Because of humor, it was clearly a comedic device, <laughs> and then also delivered wrong. Right. And it was one of those things for me, too, that I feel like a lot of texts struggle with, where it's like, you know, what is the real purpose of your sidekick in the overall tone of the film? Like, Because I think it's really easy for there to be like a disconnect between the tone of your sidekick and the tone of your overall text. And there was just like some weird shit going on there. Like that interplay was not good. I did feel like from purely like visual standpoint, they were both perfectly cast. Yes. If we're comparing shot for shot with a cartoon. Absolutely. Oh, as long as we're talking shot for shot, there were a couple of things that came out of my personal viewing experience that I feel like are important context. So we got there like five minutes before before showtime, as it were. And it was like, I think it had been out for a week or two by the time we saw it. And so we were only able to get seats in the very front row, which my theater is not super old. It was built in probably like 2004 or five. So it was like you know, when stadium theaters were becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's got, like, the big curved screen, but the rows are right up fucking close to that curved screen. So <laughs> I was sitting about three feet away from the screen in the front row, which means that in every single shot, I was, like, my head was, like, over the back of my chair looking up at Emma Watson's face. So at any given time, Emma Watson loomed, like, 
40 feet above me. (laughs) Which, no offense to her or anyone else in this world, but it's just not a good look. I'm sure it's not. (laughs) The other thing that really irked me in my viewing experience that probably did not occur to anybody else is that the beast's nose looked like a penis. And so I couldn't (laughs) focus. looks like a penis just look at the picture i can't unsee it (laughs) no one else has identified this except for you i think i might be the only one i haven't googled like (laughs) this nose looks like a penis yet but like i might be the only one i mean now that i see it (laughs) cannot be unseen you are all now living in my reality Like, why? It just, like, he popped up on the screen and I was like, you know, like in the scene where his face in the very beginning when he transforms into the beast and I was like, hello, penis nose. How are you today? (laughs) It's like a 60 foot penis just (laughs) over my head. That's what you want. (laughs) Maybe it would have been different if I had had a normal seat like the rest of the viewing audience, but since I didn't. I can't. I can't. (laughs) It was really. You broke me. (laughs) I'm literally just slacking you pictures of his face. (laughs) You are. (laughs) Yeah, it looks like a penis. (laughs) Oh. Uh, Will you add us on Twitter about this? Please keep it PG. Oh, wow. It was especially funny because within a day or two on either side of me seeing it, I can't remember if it was before or after. It must have been before because I thought about it during. Um, I had listened to the Pop Culture Happy Hour episode where they reviewed this movie. And uh, who did they have on as their fourth chair that week? Oh, I forget. Oh, fuck, I'll look it up. Anyway, the woman that they had on as their their fourth chair for that episode was talking about the overwhelming sexuality of the beast, and that's how she put it. Oh, it was Steven's so- girlfriend. Yeah, oh, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> we know a lot about the, the, the folks from Pop Culture Happy Hour. <laughs> Uh, anyway, she kept talking about the overwhelming sexuality of the beast, and then the beast pops up on the screen with a penis nose, and I was like, yeah, I can see that. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> wow. So, one more thing I'm going to talk about before we duke it out real quick over be our guest, um, is that I feel like the story was, like, even more disturbing when it was with real mm-hmm. people. Like, I feel yep. like you can separate a little bit when it's a cartoon. And I was like, oh, this is this is Stockholm Syndrome. This is not acceptable. Like, this is... No, I don't like it. And then the other, like, story flaw that I realized is that, like, her whole I Wish song about, like, getting out of the town and she's too good for this town and whatever. Like, she doesn't actually leave and all, Thank she, you. all she does is marry up. Like, okay, like, you like him because he has books and money and he can take you to Paris or whatever. Like, she's not actually moving anywhere better or doing yes. anything. And I don't even know that she really loves him. She just wants to better what? her own self and is there for her own agenda 
So this has been a beef, and this ties back to what I was, where I wanted to ultimately get to with my transition point about fixing plot holes between adaptations. So this has been bugging me in my adulthood about the I Wish song. So the whole point of her I Wish song and her I Wish moment is that she wants adventure in the great wide somewhere, and like she like there must be more than this provincial life, and she goes to a castle in the woods in her province and the only adventure from what i can tell that she really gets is i don't know furry shit Mm. (laughs) (laughs) but it's true like her whole thing was that she wanted to like see the world and adventure and like be among like-minded people. And I don't know, maybe, like, I feel like the live-action movie tried to make a point about, like, progressive politics, and so maybe that's all it was for her, is that, like, by falling in love with a beast, she felt progressive? Or, like, he let her read books and she was, like, close enough? I think that's what it was. Like, she went in that library and she was like, oh, I know how to get all these books all the time. I'm just gonna put out for these books all the time. (laughs) (laughs) It just, like, it has never connected for me. And I was, like, especially when they get to the scene where he pulls out, this was such a nothing, but he pulls out, like, the Blue Skidoo book that Enchantress gave him, and they Blue Skidoo to Paris. And, um... (laughs) That's a fun word. (laughs) Did you not watch Blue's Clues as a kid? No! Drink twice. I know. I mean, I didn't read it or watch it as a kid. It was when I was homesick because I was too old for Blue's Clues by the time that it was on Nick Jr. I didn't get Nickelodeon until it was the third grade. Well, that was old enough to be homesick watching Blue's Clues. I was too old for Blue's Clues. Yeah, you weren't watching it. It's a hate watch, Kelsey. What were you hate watching when you were homesick from school? I don't know, Arthur. Arthur wasn't on until three o'clock. And you're you're wrong. Oh, my God. you're objectively wrong. And in Blue's Clues, they would blue skidoo into books. All right. Well, stuff. now I know. And what that meant is that, like, off if we can end this blue, conversation. <laughs> blue, the dog, would, like, put her paw print on a book, and then Steve would go, blue skidoo, we can too. And then they would be inside the book. <laughs> and so, you know, <laughs> the beast pulls out his blue skidoo book, and... <laughs> They blew Skidoo to Paris. Sounds a little dirty. <laughs> I would like to redirect you to the shape of his nose. And so, um, <laughs> when he first pulls out this book, I was like, so is this the argument to explain why marrying the beast gives her adventure in her life? But no, it's just to give you, like, 10 minutes of nothing backstory about Belle's life that has no consequence for anything at all. Right. So, to your point, she does not achieve what her I Wish song started out as. And to me, an I Wish song is not meant to just be a proclamation of what would be cool in life. It's meant to be resolved by the end of the plot. That's usually how storytelling works. So, Dear Beauty and the Beast, explain fucking that one to me. (laughs) before or after the nose (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was maybe not the best word order (laughs) (laughs) oh all right 
Another thing that really irked me, and this is just like a little detail thing, her peasant dress, I'm 95% sure it was made out of denim. Wait, and she had toms. Oh my god! Yeah, she w- Okay, multiple things about the espadrilles. So she was wearing espadrilles, so that was dumb. But then she- so she goes to the castle to save her father, and she's wearing boots. She is held captive at the castle and never gets to leave. And then wouldn't you know it, by the time we get to the scene where she's in the red dress and, like, she and the Beast are throwing snowballs at each other, she's wearing espadrilles again. I was like, girl, did you have, like, a saddlebag with backup shoes to go rescue your father in fucking, like, woven sandals? Right? And then she also does the thing where she tucks part of her dress in her pants or shoes or whatever. So it's, like, up on one side. Mm-hmm. And it's like, is that to show that you're also wearing pants? Or is that, like, a functional move? Like, I don't know... I feel like it was intended to be like, oh, this dress gets in my way, so let me make it more utilitarian by tucking it up, and then I'll look cute. Like a. Yeah. Mm. Those gender norms ain't shit because of my pantaloons. <laughs> <laughs> That's the title of this episode. <laughs> it was that convincing (laughs) i don't either also the petticoat that she's wearing under her yellow ball gown for uh whatever that important scene is um (laughs) the one iconic one uh so she she leaves the castle on her horse to go rescue her father wearing this yellow ball gown and she gets locked up with her father while wearing the ball gown. And then when she and her father escape and she tries to ride back to the castle to save the beast from Gaston, she rips the dress off. And then her petticoat is just a yellow version of her her denim dress, except it had, like, gold chevron sequins on the bodice. Like you do. Like you do in what, like, 17th century France? You don't know. You don't know my life. <laughs> The prince did have some pretty swell eyeshadow in that opening scene there. He could have been a vlogger. Yeah, that was something, huh? Mm. The only line in this entire movie that I appreciated was the one that they added at the end about him growing a beard. Oh, I was not here for that. I was only because he looked like such a child. I, but, but... And, like, I but, like beards. I mean... You can't remove it from the context of her falling in love with a dude. Yeah, no, that part her, was though. that part was wrong. Yeah, mm. um, I I feel like sort of on that note, uh, one thing that I thought was interesting was that um, our friends from Pop Culture Happy Hour were observing that Emma Watson played a much more like dry and sarcastic Belle than the animated Belle was. Um, so, like, Animated Belle was much more, like, wide-eyed and wondrous and whatever. And there were times where I appreciated it, and then there were times like that, with the beard joke, where I, <laughs> I appreciated it less. There was just a lot happening. Always. Speaking of a lot happening, you want to know what was the fucking worst? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be Our Guest was the fucking worst. And I feel like it's a good note to sort of, like, start to wind down our thoughts on, especially if we're going to duke it out, because I feel like it really encapsulates a lot of what did not work for me in this film and what I hope Disney learns from as they move forward with live-action adaptations. It was an adventure 
in the ridiculous, in the absurd, and in all of the possible mistakes that you can make when given too much time, budget, and technology. Wow. I can live with some of the choices that they made on the animated side. I cannot live with the fact that they did everything that they did and then also stuck Emma Watson at the end of a green screen and just expected you to think that those things could possibly live in some kind of parallel universe, let alone the same universe. But the whole she's like living with the beast. What makes you think this is supposed to be real life? I'm not saying it's supposed to be real life. He has I'm a penis saying... nose, Kirsty. He has a penis nose. <laughs> I'm saying that if this movie was walking into the theater with the presumption that you were going to suspend your disbelief enough to think that Emma Watson is hanging out with not only a beast, but also like talking furniture, that they were going to do it in a way that I could at least sleep at night suspending my disbelief over, which they did not do in this scene. But it was the exact same as the cartoon, and that was the only point where I thought they effectively replicated that song from the cartoon in real life, because they they were over the top of their CGI. Like, that was what all of their money went to. But I thought it was an effective, the one effective use of, like, replicating that scene because it's so iconic and because, like, in my brain, I was like, oh, they're going to do the thing with the the fucking feather things and then they did it and it was like oh yeah but at least in the movie bell is also animated so they all live in the same universe so that's the problem with this whole movie then this is not just this scene that's why i said it encapsulates everything (laughs) that doesn't work for me for this film i listen to every word you say (laughs) clearly (laughs) (laughs) yeah it just like i don't think that I can handle, like, well, so Glenn Weldon of Pop Culture Happy Hour described it as um, being able to see the clunking machinery of the CGI, like everything was so clunky that you could see it like clunking across the screen trying to make itself work. I don't think I thought of it as clunky, but I certainly thought of it as looking at Emma Watson on one side of the screen and Lumiere and his dancing dishes and his confetti on the other side of the screen and not believing that those two things were on the same screen. I guess. Like, if we want to talk about the interplay between a real-life actor and CGI and a shot-for-shot remake of an animated scene, then I think the, the ballroom scene is a much better example of that. How so? In the sense that, like... I mean, the CGI for the Beast is obviously different than it is for all the dancing furniture. But at least is it? when they are, are you sure? <laughs> in terms of complexity, a little bit. Mm-hmm. But when when those two characters are together on screen, I at least believe that they exist in the same plane. You know, like in my brain, I'm like, sure, you are both within the Milky Way galaxy. Is that because there was a person sitting there with little dots on them? Probably. Regardless, it's still the job of the animators to make me believe that they all are in the same plane of existence. Right. But I mean, I think... The other thing you're supposed to remember the whole time is that, like, they're not actually objects, they're people, right? Right, but, like, there's supposed to be the give and take between the audience, so the audience comes into the film with that understanding, and if the movie doesn't meet them in the middle on that, then, like, 
exactly how much of my disbelief am I supposed to suspend before I'm allowed to be like, your candlestick is full of shit. So, like, how would they have done that song without recreating that number? Well, so, I mean, I will give them a little bit of leeway in, because I thought about it later as I was thinking about the other live action remakes that they have coming down the pike. And I was thinking like, most, most of those are slightly less complex, like Little Mermaid in particular, because I think that's the next one up, in the sense that like, dancing furniture is a pretty big leap compared to like, mermaid fins. Like, Mermaid fins are a lot easier to believe than, like, a talking teapot. Yeah, I mean, I thought, like, something that helped, actually, with the talking object thing is that, like, there were voices that I recognized. So, like, I was like, okay, you and McGregor, like, I've seen you in friggin', like, Moulin Rouge, I've seen you do this part before. Although I also wanted more out of you and McGregor. Wow, McGregor. That's a lot. (laughs) McGregor. That's his name now. <laughs> Come see <laughs> his next big film. Oh, God. Talking's hard. Especially when you're a candlestick. One other way in which... Well, okay, before I say this, um, what else do you want to say in defense of Be Our Guest? No, I think that just knowing, like, overall for this whole movie with those particular characters, objects whatever you want to call them, was, like, that benefit of knowing the voices and knowing, like, oh, I recognize this voice, I know who this is. Like, I could get past the fact that they were CGI objects and understand that, like, oh, they were supposed to still be people and keep remembering that because I was like, that voice is familiar. How do I know them? Mm -hmm. So it begs an interesting question for me that I haven't, put a lot of thought into but has been in my mind since I saw Anastasia um for you as a viewer coming into especially a remake I'm trying to figure out how to phrase that like what are you looking for and expecting like are you looking for a shot by shot are you hoping for some kind of expansion pack on the original what are what are your hopes and dreams when you walk into a remake like this? I mean, I don't know that I walked into that many remakes on purpose, but <laughs> including this one, <laughs> I think I'm either looking for um, like something that tells the same story in a different way. So like how I was saying, like I would have liked it to actually have a real setting and mm-hmm. like give it some context that a cartoon doesn't have. Um, like, that would have been interesting to me. So either tell it completely differently, or I don't know about, like, going shot for shot, but, like, trying to stay very, very true to the original. Like, it has to be one or the other. It can't be, like, a mix mm-hmm. in between. I think I would prefer to see something that's slightly different. So, like, that's why I really liked the other Cinderella, because I love the Disney one, and then I love that one. And it's the same story, but it's different songs and, like, told in a slightly different way. Yeah, so, like, I liked both of those equally because they were... Yeah. The same story that I liked. It was just completely different experiences of, like, experiencing it. That's a lot of experiences in one sentence. Yeah, truly. (laughs) Well, because I know for me, like, something that really hit home with Anastasia is, like, I was... That's an incredible show. And, like, I am really super hard on it and have a lot of criticisms of it and still love it. And I think for me, it's because I walked into it 
fully expecting that they would only improve upon the original text and that like there would be no new plot holes and that any issues with the original text would be fully resolved and improved upon. Um, and so I think I, I walked into this remake, however reluctantly, expecting the same. Like, I had issues with the original animated film, and my expectation is that you wouldn't pick up a remake without the intention of making it better. Hmm. And of course, I'm a naive newborn baby, and so, you know, there are a lot of mechanisms that would make you want to do a remake without doing anything about structural flaws. Um, and I think this movie stands a proof of that. I saw, um, speaking of, like, movie-to-play adaptations, I saw, obviously, like, once, and then I saw the play version of that, and that I don't think I was looking for, like, a direct adaptation, because, I mean, you could do it, but it's, it would just be weird, because it's a very, like, quiet and quirky movie anyway, um, mm-hmm. but I think for that, I wanted to see, like, the songs, and I wanted to see how they would, like, perform those songs, and, like, that's what I was looking for, and it was, like, yeah. I was curious to see where there would be changes, but mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily go into it expecting it to be the same exact story. So you're looking, you're looking for, like, I wanted those like room, basically, like, what the, the choices are to deviate, and what the choices are to keep the same. Yeah, like, what could I hang on to from the movie that I would be able to see, like, recreated in either the same way or a different way, but, like, what are those, like, key points that stick? Yeah, that makes sense. All right, my friend. We've, uh, we've beaten this dead beast. Penis beast. (laughs) No, we didn't beat that. (laughs) Because that would be a masturbation joke. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so uh do you, do you, any, you did uh, this you did this any, any final thoughts for, for, us, for all of the listeners that we've corrupted just send those pictures of the beast's nose no please don't don't do that <laughs> oh because what i what i'm thinking now the inevitable fallout will be that we're just gonna start getting all of all pictures of every character whose nose has ever looked like a penis oh no penises (laughs) all right Moving on. Uh, well, if you have any thoughts, feelings, and definitely no pictures of Beauty and the Beast, you know where <laughs> to find us. And if you don't know where to find us, you can find us on Twitter at HateWatchWithUs. You can also send us emails using our email address, HateWatchWithUs at gmail.com. You did that so confidently. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> What else you got for me, Kelsey? Well, I want to take a different direction for this, what will be a brief B segment, because we went way over time on (laughs) Beauty and the Beast. There was no time management here. (laughs) Um, And we're going to hate watch my joy for a small moment in time before my joy joy. inevitably gets probably destroyed. (laughs) That is such a sweet sentiment. I know. Hey, watch my joy. I like that. So I saw this news come out last week, and I can't tell you what my reaction was besides, like, 
actual tears in my eyes. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do, and I was just so overwhelmed, and I was so happy. I because will tell you, dear listeners, that it was a red alert. It was a red alert, and it's what America needs, and America's getting what America needs. It's <laughs> what America needs. <laughs> and what what's happening is we are getting, thanks to the kind, generous lovely humans at NBC. A, Which is not something you will ever hear uttered again. <laughs> Never. Um, we're getting a gift. And <laughs> can I build this up more? Yes, um, please. And what we're getting is, in the vein of the Great British Bake Off reference episode one, if you need more details there, we're getting... The Handmade Project, which is a crafting competition show hosted by Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman. So basically, in my mind, Leslie's coming back to save America with crafts. <laughs> the dream team is coming back together. Crafts and woodworking, and I'm just so happy! <laughs> <laughs> Um, as taken directly from the casting call, do you thrive on creating? Armed with a hot glue gun or a hammer, can you make just about anything? Whether you are a late night garage tinkerer, an Etsy preneurer, preneurer, Etsy preneurer, or everyone's favorite crafting grandma, we want you to apply. Yeah, they do. So, Kiersey very quickly, like, ruined all of my hopes and dreams, but only a little. <laughs> and she said that NBC will never be able to recreate the warm glow of happiness and friendship and magic that is the Great British Bake Off. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's probably true. Mm -hmm. Even with the most competent of hosts, mm -hmm. or at least, like, pure of hosts. Pure. <laughs> I mean, it's not... It's not Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler's fault. Well, it's not Amy Poehler's fault. Um, I will own that Nick Offerman and I have minor beef. Just a wee bit of beef. A whisper of beef. Um, so I don't blame Amy Poehler in particular. Uh, I really blame NBC I blame reality television, and I blame whatever destructive force of nature undid the things that I loved about Great British Bake Off. We will get into that at another time. We will. This is not the time for that. It's not. I just wanted to throw it out there. Well, I just want to thank little Sebastian, R.I.P., <laughs> for giving us this gift. <laughs> As my magnetic fridge poetry says, President Lil Sebastian believes in you. Aww. Um, anyway, so I figured we could very quickly kind of dabble in our hopes and dreams for The Handmade Project, because, mm -hmm. as you said, NBC will ruin everything. So before they do, um, let's talk a little bit about what you think a dream handmade project could be like. I think we should talk about, like, tone and like s setting like is it in a tent is it not in a tent 
there's no way they can be in a tent. I That would be near plagiarism at this point. I heard somewhere that it was an outdoor setting. That I wouldn't be shocked by. Perhaps on a lake? Perhaps under a picnic pavilion? Perhaps at a state park? Perhaps at a state park! Picnic pavilion! Oh, guys, this is what America needs. I'm so happy. In terms of tone, what I would like to see from it, it, well, I'm having multiple thoughts. What I would like to see from it would be what's that? It's like a Scandinavian concept of like comfort. The one with big blankets and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That begins with an H. Yeah, um, look at Twitter, y'all. Like, people are talking about it. It's a trend right now. It's like Higgy or Higgy. Yeah, yeah. I'd expect it to be that, but, like, toned down, like, little, little diluted version of that. Lil Higgy? Lil, Lil Higgy. <laughs> Lil Higgy. <laughs> <laughs> Episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, spare us. <laughs> it's too much. Uh, oh, the man. benevolence of NBC finally broke me. <laughs> <laughs> I well, it's so it's hard for me to really get a hold of what the tonal quality will be because the thing about Great British Bake Off is that like they're there's a lot of like varying skills within baking, um, but this is like the Handmade Project is trying to get deep into like a world that is not the same. Like if you go through the casting call, um, they I'm scrolling down, but they have a list of like different things that you could be into, and it's like jewelry making, woodworking, knitting, cross stitch, quilting, upholstery. Um, Fashion, leather, ceramics, sculpture, like dollhouses. These are not shared skills. Calligraphy, cake decorating, interior design, floral design, cosplay. Like there are some overlap, but not the same way that there's overlap between baking a sponge cake and baking a croissant. I mean, do you think they're trying to find like the crazy like jack of all trades people? I don't think that they're trying to find a jack of all trades, but I think they wouldn't be asking for this many different types of categories if there wasn't some intention of dabbling. I in think these there's definitely going to be dabbling. And so I my guess is that what they're looking for is similarly to Great British Bake Off where they're looking for someone with solid enough foundations in baking that they understand concepts that are transferable to different types of pastry dough or whatever. My guess is that they're going to be looking to cast people who have enough savvy that like they can you know work their way around tools and building and glue and media like mixed media projects um but i guess my beef with it is that like these are all such very different things i don't understand how you can make it like tonally cohesive in terms of what you're looking for for like the ultimate crafter or whatever they're going to name the winner i mean are we assuming they're going to do like jewelry week and knitting week 
And cross That's my assumption. Although I have to say, like, that is my assumption. I do not understand, as a knitter myself, how they can have a knitting challenge. No, but there was a question about, like, how much time does it take you to complete certain projects on average? True. Which seems unfair for some of these. Right, but is it, like, knit uh, baby booties? Like, you can make those in two hours. But that's not really, like, a maker challenge. No. Well, I'm so I'm thinking, like, if you have someone who is a florist, um, and I'm thinking about a florist that I know pretty well in particular, versus a woodworker, like, the time that it takes to complete um, even a large-scale floral arrangement or floral sculpture is not going to be equivalent to the time that it takes to build a bench. Well, right. But that wouldn't be, like, a simultaneous challenge, would it? I wouldn't think in parallel, but in terms of... I just think it inherently presents a challenge in trying to stack people up against each other and then weigh whose skills are better. I don't know. Like, it doesn't necessarily have to be, like, something elaborate. Like, what if it's, like, more basic tasks, but everyone has to do them? Well, I mean, they'll have to be somewhat basic because I'm imagining that it's not going to be like Project Runway where they give you like a week to do each thing. Right. Um, I would think at most they'll only give contestants overnight for glue to dry, depending on the challenge. Um, I guess I'm just not clear, even reading the casting call, like what they are looking for in a winner. I, I suppose I... And picking up on some patterns of what they're looking for in a contestant. But I don't have a cohesive sense of what they're looking for in a winner. That's fair. I think my biggest fear from this show, and I don't think it'll go this way, but just in case it does, I'm going to just say it, is that they incorporate selling your work as part of the competition. I think that's absolutely true because, and that was already a flag that I threw down, um, because somewhere in the casting column, scrolling through it now, there's a question about your Etsy store and um, like how much of your time and income goes into selling your goods. Right. So either that's a weeding out people and they want people who are amateurs like Great British Bake Off, or it's a like scary world that I don't think would be respectful to little Sebastian's memory. Right. My guess is that they're looking for semi-professionals who have an Etsy presence, but either still have day jobs or are, like, just barely making it on Etsy but haven't gone viral yet. Yeah, I think that's probably accurate. I mean, I'm more hopeful than you are, probably, for this show. Yeah. (laughs) For once in my life. I think that's absolutely true. Um, I think the announcement of this show, like taps deep into some of my, like, very deeply held beliefs and cynicism about the true meaning of network television. You're not wrong. I just... So, (laughs) I'm thinking... I think it's beautiful. Oh. (laughs) I'm thinking of how we just talked about, I think, we were talking about with that terrible NBC pilot that I watched, how they're, like, grasping at straws to get back some of their, like missing audience and i think this is like a step in that direction to be like remember these guys who who we all loved and who made america great in a nice (laughs) way and not in a terrible way they're bringing them back for us america craft again right that's all i want 
I mean, I think you're on to something. I think that um, it, there is an opportunity to capitalize on the popularity of Great British Bake Off. Because, like, the one thing that has consistently been said about that show is that it makes people happy and it's, like, warm and gooey inside. And, like, it is Leslie Knope's America. Um, and so I think NBC saw an opportunity to capitalize on that. And NBC already had a relationship with Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman and was like, you know, people felt warm and glowy about Leslie Nope and Ron Swanson. So what if we just smush them all together? Maybe it'll work. I'm not saying it won't work. I am saying it's going to ruin my life if it doesn't work, though. <laughs> I am also saying that I will probably let you watch it first. That's going to be a hate watch to remember. Truly. <laughs> Although, we're going to watch it together. Who am I kidding? Aww. <laughs> oh, here we go. Um, I'm reading a, a description. I had a few articles pulled up. So, um, each week, eight all-around makers from all walks of life will take on a series of projects. Um, over the course of each episode, contestants must tackle a different theme. Each week, items. eight? Well, is that what you said? Yeah, each week, eight all-around makers. Does that mean there's no eliminations? Does that mean it is going to be selling? It's only six episodes, so there's got to be eliminations. Okay. all right. This is America. This is America. Who are we kidding? Um, over the course of each episode, contestants must tackle a different theme, um, hand-making items in different disciplines, the difficulty of which increases with every episode until the winner is... Well, here's a typo. Until the winner is crowned. Close. <laughs> until, <laughs> until they are crown. <laughs> Maybe they'll just well, get a flower crown. Like how on British Book Off, they only get a cake stand. Uh, oh, so I was literally just about to say um, that I understand what Nick Offerman brings to the party because he has a woodworking business, um, but that I didn't understand what Amy Poehler brings to the party other than being friends with Nick Offerman. But I just saw this paragraph that says, Polar is a self-proclaimed crafting novice who has long harbored a secret appreciation for those who can imagine and execute incredible things by hand. Wow, that's so beautiful. I mean, my hope, my hope is that they are not the Mary and Paul, but they are the Mel and Sue, because I think there's a lot more value there. Like, I want them yeah. to just say puns, terrible puns, at my face all day. Well, it kind of sounds like there will be other judges involved. Right. Just from, like, the skimming of the articles that I'm reading. Like, although, like, if anyone is going to be the American Paul Hollywood, it might be Nick Offerman. Uh, I will put that out there. I disagree with that statement. Why? But, I mean, I don't have a counter argument. I just disagree with it. I don't have an alternative American Paul Hollywood. <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> because I only added him on Instagram last week. I'm still learning <gasps> about his life. That's what I was going to talk about. <laughs> okay, talk to me about God it. God damn it. Side note. I was supposed to have an intro to go along with Kirstie's little <laughs> intro, and I forgot what it was because I thought it was this, but it wasn't. It was go on Instagram and follow Paul Hollywood because it's, absolutely the greatest thing you'll ever do in your life maybe it's not wild but it's so wild so it's paul.hollywood is his handle obviously um he posts his own baking and he also posts like 
bad dad selfies. That's the only way I can think of that. Plus, he posts weird, like, weird either promo shots with Mary Berry that look like prom photos or, like, mm-hmm. single shots of himself that were staged. And then there was this one really great Instagram from this week where he posted a new Twitter handle that he's starting about his Hollywood Drives BBC motoring series and his screenshot of the Twitter page that had 17 followers. And it was just my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> oh, Paul. Paul. That's such a soggy bottom. Oh, he's so great, though. Aw. He's a good egg. He is a good egg. Just like our friends, Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman. They're all good eggs, and they all just want us to be happy. I So, I mean, I believe that Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler want us to be happy. I don't believe NBC wants us to be happy. That's all. I think that's true. I'm just holding out hope. I don't think it... I hope it's not false hope. You know it is false hope, and you're, like, smugly <laughs> sitting there like you're going to be disappointed. I'm not trying to be smug at all. I'm just trying to be honest about my heart. Oh, you have to, like... Take me down about 17 notches before it starts, so it's okay. Oh, I don't want to do that, though, because I, I like, hate watching your joy. Aw, me too. It's Aww. so rare. It's so beautiful and so rare. <laughs> I'm also really excited to see who gets crown. <laughs> me too. <laughs> oh, typo humor. It never gets old. Ah. <laughs> uh. On that note, if you have any thoughts about what your signature bake will be for The Handmaid Project. <laughs> or want to tell us about the essay that you wrote for your casting call. That's for sure. What are you most proficient in? Dollhouse making or friendship bracelets? Tweet Ooh, us. Yeah, I'm going to enter for my friendship bracelets. So real talk, <laughs> I have had to have multiple eight-year-olds teach me how to make paper airplanes and friendship bracelets because I... Having been an eight-year-old myself, I have never been able to retain the information. You can do them for, like, one bracelet, and then you're like, okay, I'm done. Nope. Doesn't come back to you. Shit doesn't come back. You know what does come back to you, though? What's that? Our Twitter handle, which is at HateWatchWithUs. (laughs) Please tweet to us. We're lonely. (laughs) (laughs) At the time of this recording, we have two followers. <laughs> but our tweet content is pretty great if I do say so myself. Our tweet content? Twitter content. Whatever. <laughs> um, if they don't want to be our Twitter friends and don't want us to be happy like NBC, where could they find us? They can find us at our Gmail address, hatewatchwithus at gmail.com. <sighs> well, this has been fun. So fun. I guess we'll see you next time. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye! Goodbye!